0: Welcome to the BNA Talks podcast with me Wayne Massey. Working our way through Mark's gospel, we have reached chapter 8 and let's just dive in. Reading from verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Crowds are always gathering around Jesus, aren't they? Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anybody get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks to them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. So he's fed the 5,000. Now he's going to feed the 4,000. Um, a large crowd gathered. That's verse 1. I, I just Every time I keep... I was just thinking about this. thing. Jesus says, uh, "Go, make disciples of all nations." Greater things that you will do. Uh, um, the Spirit has been poured out. How often in the life of the church do we see large crowds gathered because of the signs of the kingdom drawing near? It's a challenge to us. I think it's an invitation to pray and and to call on God to move in power so that people would see the kingdom of God at work. Uh, once again. Um, This crowd with nothing to eat, Jesus says, I have compassion. Jesus is full of emotion um, um, for people and love and care for people. Um, So he's basically going, if I send them home hungry, they're going to collapse. The disciples in verse 4, remember, how many miracles have these guys seen, including, remember, the feeding of the 5,000? And they're like, where are we going to get enough bread? Um, It's kind of like, you know, you're like, guys! (laughs) Do you you not know what he's going to do again? Um, But it's just a real reminder and a real lesson that actually we forget, don't we? Even the people who are with Jesus, when something happens again, don't get what he could do. Um, There's something about this uh, repeating of the miracle. Um, It recalls again the Exodus story, but also underscores Jesus' power and provision. So actually, the fact Mark tells the story again, and it, it is—it's a, a different feeling, and it's just this: he did this, and he did it again. It just underscores just how powerful Jesus is, and how compassionate he is. Um, the more these miracles are going to go on, the more we're going to see him being rejected, and that's—that's that's something that I think linked to why don't we see large crowds gather is actually the more the kingdom breaks out, the more the, the more the the spirit that is um, of this uh, age, the more that Satan is going to is, is going to challenge it and the more the people who don't want to see the kingdom of God break in are going to reject it. Um, culture does not mind a tame church. and um, it's, it's an active, roaring church that culture um, will oppose. Mark um, is very keen because um, we've got the Pharisees coming in verse 11 that we see that, that it's the people whose eyes are closed and whose hearts are hard are failing to see what is going on here. Paul um, in his epistles will say that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. It's just a reminder um, that we all need the Spirit of God to open our minds and our eyes and our hearts to who Jesus is and to what God is up to. So he's fed uh, 4,000. Of course, we're in a bigger um, and the baskets. Again, a different word, but again, probably about the size of a human being. So again, big baskets, a so big emphasis on um, abundance when God provides, and so the Pharisees come, and you're just like, guys, what? <laughs> They're asking for a sign. You're like, what? Why are you asking? What? He's just fed four thousand people, um, and that's just again, it's just a kind of like, whenever this happens, Mark wants us to see that this isn't, oh, show us another sign. We're interested. It's, it's actually a lack of faith. Uh, it's disbelief. It's hard hearts. Um, only the blind uh, fail to see. And um, in, interesting enough, in this one. Uh, He says, no sign will be given to it. In Matthew and Luke, uh, Matthew and Luke say that Jesus said, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, three days in the well. Jesus, three days dead before rising again, saying the sign that will be given, the sign sign that is given to all of us under which uh, we can either receive our freedom or our judgment is the cross and the resurrection. When God himself takes our sin and our rebellion on himself, and when he defeats death, the consequence of that sin and rebellion, and offers us new life, that is the sign that is given to everybody. So, so whenever we talk about Jesus, whenever we talk about God's activity in the world, we have to get to Easter. We have to get to Easter. So that was the feeding of the four thousand. Which ends with the Pharisees questioning him. Uh, Let's read on from verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. Ah, Now, hold on a second. Here comes another bread thing. So let's all get our, ooh, um, something's going to happen Uh, antennae up. Because the last two times there hasn't been bread, we've had feelings of massive crowds. So the disciples have forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful. Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, oh, is this because we have no bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, Seven. He said, Do you still not understand? So they've got no bread. They think, Oh, they. Basically, go. Oh no, we don't have any bread, Uh, and then Jesus uses that not this time for a miracle but for teaching. He says, Beware the yeast of the leaven, of course, which when you a little bit through all the dough causes it to spread and grow. So, he's saying, Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod, watch out for um, the special source, as it were, of the workspace righteousness of the Pharisees, watch out for the special source of the um, cultural. Uh, what's the word i'm looking for Cult, um, basically giving into culture of herod um, because actually that will work through and will and will cause you harm it's a good challenge for us actually do we watch out for the yeast of a workspace righteousness or do we w- watch out for a, the yeast of where we just go along with culture without ever thinking about it uh, and then he asks them a series of questions you know do you still not see? Do you have eyes but fail? Don't you remember? How many basketfuls? And they are an invitation to the disciples to embrace God's sovereignty and power. They um some of the language is rooted in Old Testament prophets and and that call to see who Jesus is and what he is doing. And of course this is happening. He's he's basically he's locating this um The Pharisees have just challenged him. And so he's saying to his disciples, watch out for these guys and and the heart that they bring and how it could affect you. And that's in the context of miracles that have happened. And he's basically saying, do you not understand? Do you not yet get it? Um, It's a really good question for Mark's readers, uh, and Mark is also using it to set something that's going to come up later on in this chapter. Do you not get it? Do you not see? Watch out for the yeast of unbelief and the damage it could do. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. When he spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So he's basically just been saying to these guys in the boat, do you not see, and then Mark gives us the healing of a blind man um, the healing did happen, but Mark has probably put it here so we can see that the only one who can open our eyes is God himself. The only one, back to the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We need to pray that Jesus would open not just our eyes, but the eyes of everybody we know and love who we want to come to meet Jesus. And um, Bethsaida is a town on the northern shore. Um, again, just reading that, it just made me remember, reminded me, um, we are talking about real people, real events and places, and real history. This is not a fairy story. Uh, this is real. Um, now, Jesus does a kind of an interesting thing here. He takes the guy outside of the village. That's a new move, probably to avoid attention. And then he spits on his eyes. And that might be similar to, um, do you remember, when he, he held the guy by the tongue? When he, um, Again, it's that kind of sense of what is about to happen and where the power and the authority comes from. When the guy um, says, I see people looking like trees, most commentators say, well, he probably was somebody who had become blind and has a memory of, you know, what trees look like. And then we get this two-stage healing. Some people have problems with this, and they're like, oh, is, you know, is, is there a limit to Jesus? But actually, maybe it's just some way that God operates, um, and Jesus prays again. And it's one of the things we do do in the church, is we, we keep on praying. And sometimes we see a measure of healing, and we pray again. Um, we submit to God and what he is doing. Um, so do we have an expectation of healing Um, and will we keep on praying Jesus ends it by saying don't go into the village again this is a whole sense remember there are crowds everywhere this kind of avoiding attention because people don't quite yet get who Jesus is and what it means and with that we're going to come on to a very crucial bit of the gospel uh, Mark's gospel so reading from verse 27 Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is north uh, of the Sea of Galilee. It's near the source of the River Jordan. It's a non-Jewish area. Uh, Herod Philip had built it and named it after himself and after Caesar. So it's kind of like the antithesis, really, of kind of a good Jewish village and a good Jewish place. So Jesus and his uh, disciples are in, uh, you know, kind of the least kind of Jewish place they could have been. It's, um, it, it's, it's a beautiful town built to the glory of of one Herod uh, and of Caesar. And there he asks them this question. Verse 27. Who do people say I am? This is the key question for anybody, anytime, anywhere. Who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis says he's either mad, bad or God. Um, He doesn't give you the option to be a good man. He doesn't give you the option to be a teacher. He's either a madman who thought he was God because he's very clear about who he thinks he is. He's either a bad man who knew he wasn't God and was pretending to be God or he's God himself. Uh, Bono picks up on that um, and, and, and adds to it. He says that Bono, the thing that Bono says, he finds the whole idea that the whole of human history could be orientated around a bad man or a madman quite disturbing. Whereas for it to be ordered around God himself come to us is liberating and freeing. So Jesus says to them, who do you say I I, Who do people say I am? Um, And that is the key question for anybody. Now they replied, verse 28, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So again, they reply with what culture says. And then Jesus goes, what about you? Who do you say I am? This is personal. A weakness in our culture is we have um, a correct understanding that sin is often systemic. It's um, bound up in systems and in cultures. And, but what we are in danger of forgetting is that sin is also personal. And so when we talk about systemic sin, uh, we forget about the personal responsibility that each of us have for the sin in our lives, for the fact that we are a sinner for who has fallen short of God's glory, and that, we, that I need his grace, that I am a sinner short of his glory, and I need his grace. And when we prioritize the systemic over the individual, we fail to call people to personal repentance and to lives of following Jesus. And so who is Jesus and who do you say Jesus is? Peter answers. First, this is verse 29. You are the Messiah. The penny drops. And then Jesus warns them not to tell anybody about him. Now, I'm going to move on to explain why he he does that, not to tell anybody about him in a second, but, um, of course, in the other Gospels, this is the point where um, Jesus says on this, you, you know, names Peter Rock and says on this, um, I will build my church. But what's really interesting, the gates of hell will not prevail. Um, gates, I'm going to the other Gospels here, but gates are something that was shut in the city um, twice in two occasions, one at night to keep uh, robbers, etc., out, And number two, when there was battle. Gates are a defensive thing in the ancient Near East. You did not need to shut your gates if you did not fear. And so when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail, he has the church, the kingdom of God is on the advance, my friends. We're not on the back foot, we are on the front foot. And it is the gates of hell that are quaking before Jesus and his church. Not the other way around. Um... Now, he says, right, that was a tangent. Uh, Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. in verse 30. Let's read on. And then he began to teach them, this 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is Mark's first kind of, big prediction about easter the son of man um, jesus fav- mark's favorite term jesus favorite term for himself as well um, he is a representative of you and me who one day will be our judge and we discover that he must face judgment first and um, the son of man must it's a reminder that this is a th- there's a plan it's a divine plan and this is of course the plan to rescue us um, he goes on first he spoke plainly about this so jesus doesn't hold back And the the question is, is is suddenly telling them that the Messiah is going to have to suffer and die and face rejection? Is this going to be too much? Is it going to be too clear? Will they be able to handle it? No, because Peter takes him aside and begins begins to rebuke him. And you can see why, because actually Peter's whole mindset, he's given everything to follow Jesus. He's just declared that Jesus is the Messiah and he's still operating with that kind of old mentality of, of who Messiah is, a conquering king. Um, yes, he's a rescuer, but he's come to rescue through power and through strength and to bring freedom that way. And so this concept that the Messiah might suffer and die, Peter just can't get his head around. Um, but Jesus doesn't treat him with kid gloves. He, he um, looks at the disciples. So this is really good. It's not just Peter he's rebuking here. It's all of them. And he basically calls Peter out for being Satan's proxy. And that is because when taking on the human perspective, Peter is stepping into the way that Satan would have us see how power and authority work and about how God would work and, and Satan would stop us seeing that God's love and sacrifice go together. We want power and authority and Satan wants us to lean into that and not see that love and sacrifice are where power and authority are most seen powerfully. Jesus will suffer. He will identify with us so much that he will go to the cross, where he will take care of the problem of sin. Uh, he will meet the consequence of sin on your behalf and on my behalf, death. Facing that consequence, we know that he will rise again, defeating us. But that is the way, that is the must-suffer the, um, the must of verse 31. That is the, define, the divine plan to free you and me, is that God himself will become one of us and take on the consequence of our rebellion. And it appalls us when we hear that. And, and Satan does not want us to hear the truth. So that's why Jesus is so full on in his rebuke of Peter. And then he pushes on to talk about discipleship. Verse 34. Then he called the crowds, so he's widening it out from the disciples, along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. I'm going to stop there. So deny themselves, take up their cross. They are in the arist imperative. So the idea is, it's a one-time act- uh, action and decision. It is a starting point. I have, I have decided to deny myself and to take up my cross. Um, so denying oneself is to turn from a selfish focus in life. That is the the nature of sin is to put ourselves first. And so when we deny ourselves, we're putting God first. Um, Taking up our cross is, is stepping into the way of sacrifice and recognizing that, um, as Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And as I said, aorist imperative, which means that it's a one-time in the past starting point. Have you decided to deny yourself and take up your cross? Whoever must deny, take up the cross and follow me. Now, this is interesting because follow me is present imperative. It's a consistent, ongoing call. Following Jesus is a constant practice. It is the greatest vocation that you and I can have in our lives. It's a daily decision, um, and it's something that we are active in doing. So I have decided to follow Jesus, to take up my cross, to deny myself, and I am daily deciding to follow Jesus. Get that? So that's the way of discipleship. A decision to turn from a selfish life, repent, Um, and to, to identify fully with Jesus to take up a cross, and then daily decisions to follow the way of Jesus. And then he kind of counters it in the language of exchange. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for somebody to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So the language of exchange is this life, which actually is rooted, um, it's uh, adulterous and sinful generation, that could be any generation, but it's this life, which yes has a lot of good in it, but actually is a life that's living in a broken world, that is um, uh, under the you know gro- groaning, awaiting its final redemption, and then there is the life to come. And and in order to step fully into the life to come, and that begins for us now, we must say no to this life. So if I want to save my life, my now life, I'm going to lose the life of eternity. But if I lose my now life, if I choose to deny myself and take up my cross, I will gain eternity. And Jesus says, "For me and for the gospel, He never separates Himself from the from Easter." You can't. Jesus uh, Himself sees that who He is and and the the good news of Easter go together. Yeah, get that for me and for my gospel, so that. Jesus links the gospel. So, you want to you keep your life now? You're going to lose your life in eternity. You're willing to give up your life now? You're going to gain your life in eternity. And then he pushes on. Well, you know, what good? I could gain the whole world, which is passing. And yet I would forfeit my soul. I would forfeit eternity. And What could anybody give in exchange for their soul? I couldn't give anything. But Jesus gave himself. I can't give anything to gain my soul. But Jesus gave himself. And then, and then, ending with, um, if anyone is ashamed of me in my words, uh, that verse thirty-eight. Have a look at that. Um, The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels, remembering that the one who must suffer and die is also the one who will come again to judge. Um, Mark alludes to the return of Jesus as judge and as Lord of all. So, so there's a big shift that happens in Mark chapter eight. We we get some more miracles. We get some hard hearts from the Pharisees. Uh, we get Peter's declaration, and then we get the implication of what it means to understand that Jesus is Messiah, that he must suffer and die, and that we're invited into the way of the cross. So, as we do um, every week and we think about the kingdom drawing near, we ask ourselves three questions. The up question What did this passage, this chapter, tell me about what God is like? The in question, what did I need to hear as a follower of Jesus? And the out question, what difference does this make for the people I love and I serve and I pray for? God bless you all, and next time, Mark chapter 9.